welcome to episode 4 of quantificating across the pond in this episode uh, uday and i talk about uh, kashmir um, in the uh, amit shah era uh, as home minister uh, we talk about the past we talk about the present uh, and we talk about the future uh, with this government now we also talk about uh, political satire its its history and uh, its impact on uh, millennial thinking in india today uh we hope to bring you a few laughs and a lot to think about in this episode in our first three episodes uh today we discussed the uh indian elections and you know the outcome and the entire build up to it and the the final uh, uh government that was formed uh, and obviously we've aired a lot of opinions around it uh now let's kind of uh, steer our way to one of uh, modi's projects in his first 5 years uh which was uh, kashmir uh, and uh, the the entire tone was set uh, when modi came into power um 5 years ago uh, with a visit to pakistan with this entirely uh, friendly stance and this approach that seemed uh, to be very much in line with the previous governments uh but it quickly sad uh, a lot changed uh, both across the border and uh, even back home uh, there were you know uh, there was the government uh, moving the supreme court on article 35a um there was uh, uh, you know the government uh, the state government uh, uh, falling in uh, kashmir which was in coalition with uh, the bjp um there was what we see the highest number of uh, youths joining the you know terrorist organizations in kashmir and an overall uh, open uh, kind of a mandate given to the defense forces uh, in kashmir and what pretty much heralded the beginning of uh, this strong arm tactics in kashmir and we've started seeing so many more attacks on the establishment obviously in the last uh, couple of years and it's uh, remain fairly the same uh, since modi's come into power in the second term so what really uh, was achieved in these 5 years with kashmir right i mean this one burning problem that uh, india and most of its politicians uh, and the establishment seems um, hard to solve it's or is it just uh, a lack of capability lack of clear thinking um what really happened in the last 5 years and what is the game plan going ahead uh so i think at the risk of again talking about the history of kashmir uh which goes back to the day india and pakistan became independent uh the biggest problem that politicians have been very happy to uh keep kicking down the road is that no permanent solution to the entire state the princely state of jammu and kashmir has been found uh india and pakistan uh, our leaders they came very close to a solution a couple of times most they were probably closest uh, in the aftermath of uh, 1971 but what is forgotten is that even musharraf and uh, vajpayee were quite close to a solution which would make the line of control the permanent international border and honestly where india and pakistan and kashmir stand today there will not be any other solution which will be acceptable to both sides and also a solution which will be feasible 
to implement from both sides uh, we are not going to have a situation where uh, the entire state of jammu and kashmir including aksai chin which has been annexed by china including territory which has been ceded by pakistan to china in 1963 all of that territory is not going to be returned to india in under any circumstance so the resolution that uh, indian parliamentarians passed in 92 stating that all of jammu and kashmir is an integral part of india that has become the stumbling block for this generation of politicians and in an age where india and pakistan can only fight limited conflicts because we are under the nuclear umbrella there will most likely not be a situation where all parties will be forced to the negotiating table with one party having a clear upper hand that is not going to happen so pakistan's strategy of bleeding india with a thousand cuts and more specifically kashmir with a thousand cuts has succeeded in that sense and like you pointed out it has been modi and bjp's project of integrating jammu and kashmir much more tightly with india and i've found many reasons to take offense or disagree with uh, the government's policies but i think the kashmir policy is not one of those areas i've always advocated for a much more a much stronger posturing in the kashmir valley and one of the key planks of that uh, muscular posture is giving the armed forces a free rein in executing their cict operations this government did that manifestly and very clearly the moment it came to power in 2014 and that is the period from which the casualty rate of the terrorists started going very high which all culminated in 2016 when buran wani was killed and that the effect on the separatists of that event was something that the indian government and the security forces didn't anticipate uh, there was mass mobilization in kashmir he was hailed as a martyr and that is what led to a deteriorating situation all around there was more uh, unrest and more uh, literally more bricks being thrown at the indian army when they wanted to conduct their cict operations and that led to a much more uh, forceful response by not just the indian army but also the jammu and kashmir police and the central paramilitary forces uh, in the valley so one key tenant of the government which they enshrined in the last 5 years was that first kashmir will be dealt with as a military problem as a security problem and for the past 70 years we've been trying to do something very different we've been trying to treat it as a security issue and as and when the politicians in delhi feel interested in solving the issue they also make it a political issue but what has now been very clearly stated is that jammu and kashmir will be dealt with as a security issue first the biggest risk of that strategy is that the government doesn't wean itself away from this uh, strategy of led uh, that they have enshrined that they don't know when to step back from this military led strategy to one which uh, involves talks with all parties and unfortunately that all parties also include pakistan there cannot be a solution without engaging with pakistan for now this strategy has largely worked because the armed forces are happy and the politicians are uh, you know 
in a very cynical sense they i wouldn't call them happy but uh, the fact that there are bodies of soldiers which come back to the hinterland and villages and cities uh, every now and then from the kashmir valley uh, the nation's attitudes against uh, this strain of separatism they've also hardened so the politicians are also in a strong firm footing uh, in that sense that there is no political risk to actually following this strategy uh, but on that note uh, they how, how does the government um, get away with uh, having a very strong uh, military hand on kashmir uh, giving them this free reign uh, yet having to balance the various players uh, in the valley you know between the separatist leaders um, between the local people uh, and obviously pakistan as you know the external stakeholder in all of this uh, isn't it always going to be like a really difficult you know tight rope to walk uh, with public sentiment driving so much of the decision making uh, in the valley it definitely is a tight rope but this is one government which has decided that it wants to try and perform that balancing act and the first uh, part of that act is letting the armed forces uh, run free uh, it's letting them combat these terrorists with uh, you know with both their arms with not with one arm tied behind their back but as for the other plank uh, they've now pivoted back to vajpayee's uh, negotiating stance of uh, kashmiriyat insaniyat and jaburiyat but what they've neglected to do is also include hariyat in that uh, three plank strategy because uh, they have manifestly come out and said that they will not engage uh, the hariyat with in talks and that may be a profitable strategy if you know they represented only one element of the separatists but the fact that almost all separatists of all views and uh, varying degrees of violence they all all fall under this broad umbrella of hariyat so they will have to be included in these in this three plank strategy of uh, kashmiriyat insaniyat and jamhuriyat that cannot succeed without the fourth uh, hariyat so i think that is where this government needs to have more of an outreach probably engage uh, much stronger interlocutor maybe one of the ex army chiefs so maybe one of the ex uh, heads of the intelligence services those are the people who will be able to bring all parties to the negotiating table and that is the political battle that they have to fight they can fight it as long as there's president's rule uh, in kashmir but the second it comes down to free and fair elections which is what instigated the first set of uh, unrest in the late 1980s as long as the indian government doesn't ensure successive free and fair elections and lets the government state government function i don't think there will be the political plank to fall back on and then it becomes very difficult for them to uh, retreat and retrench from the lethal policy of led that they have been advocating in the valley right so then there is this clear uh, you know just constitutional uh, kind of strife that is also going on in uh, kashmir right besides uh, all the other uh, battles that the government is fighting uh, which is uh, that there hasn't uh, been a state government for some time the president's rule has been extended uh, um, 
for another six months, uh, starting July, and you know, election dates might come out only in August, and again, there is uh, very little surety around that. Uh, there's also conversation uh, and a debate that has started uh, around the whole, uh, you know, delimitation process of adding, uh, you know, constituencies that haven't voted in a long time, uh, that some of them uh, exist uh, in Pakistan occupied Kashmir. Um, it's also, you know, trying to give uh, uh, some sense of uh, <clears throat> importance and representation to greater parts of Jammu and Ladakh. How do some of these constitutional battles, if I may call them, uh, figure in the overall uh, conversation in Kashmir, right? I mean, it just seems to be so much happening and so much to be solved for. They all form a part of this this grand project uh, of Kashmir that the BJP and uh, Narendra Modi and Amit Shah specifically have taken on uh, uh, again, going back to the 1950s, there, the original Jammu-based party, which was formed to check the Kashmir Valley's dominance of the state's politics, was the Jammu Praja Parishad. And even they had a very evocative slogan, which said, Ek Nishan, Ek Vidhan, or Ek Pradhan, which translates into one flag, one constitution, and one head of state. Because it was a very clear reference to Sheikh Abdullah being called the Prime Minister of Jammu and Kashmir and not just the Chief Minister. He was allowed to fly his party's flag next to the national flag, something which is not allowed anywhere in the rest of India. It did come in line very quickly in the 50s with the rest of the country in terms of uh, there being just one national flag. But there were many concessions which were made to... Uh, essentially the Kashmir Valley and Sheikh Abdullah who represented them at that time. And that is something which has irked the regions of Jammu and Ladakh for a very long time. There has been a decades-old movement in Ladakh uh, to be for the status of a union territory. And there has been a multi-decade-long struggle in Jammu to arrest the dominance that Kashmir... Uh, the overwhelming role that Kashmir has played in the state's politics. So these two movements are A, very old. They have been given voice by this current BJP government. And also in the last assembly elections, the BJP had a strategy where they very clearly maximized their votes in the Jammu and Ladakh regions. And out of 87 seats in the assembly, they won 25, which is what helped them form uh, a coalition government in Srinagar. So... I would say these are very old demands which are now being voiced very strongly by the RSS and the BJP, but mostly the Jammu-based Jammu Hindus who for very long have not been part of the discourse uh, on Kashmir. They're just as much a part of the state and they haven't had as much as loud a voice as their population or their demands require. So I think it's an old demand which is now being voiced. And delimitation is a very clear step in helping them voice those concerns. It would essentially redistribute seats along these three, across these three regions. And Kashmir's dominance then might be checked by Jammu having more seats and thus having a louder voice in the assembly in uh, Srinagar and in the summer, in the winter in Jammu. Right. So do you see more of the same uh, from the BJP government in the next five years? I mean, uh, in, the, in the last two years before the elections, 
uh, we saw such an escalation um, in attacks on uh, uh, you know the security establishment in uh, uh, Kashmir. Now, was this uh, an expected reaction? Was was the was the armed forces uh, prepared for this, and were the BJP prepared for this? Right, because uh, while a lot of what happened in Kashmir uh, became part of the discourse uh, during election campaigning, uh, but I mean, what does it do to the morale of the uh, armed forces and the security apparatus for one? And two, do you see the BJP government uh, sticking to this overall strategy or, uh, you know, do you see that in another six months post the elections, uh, they will have to kind of take a step back? I think this government will continue with this strategy as long as they keep seeing terrorist attacks. But the perverse result of that is that the stronger and the more muscular the state's approach is, the stronger the alienation felt in the valley. And we keep saying valley. It's just the one region in Kashmir of South Kashmir, which is now the root cause of most of the evil which befalls uh, the security forces. And it can be traced back to... A, the killing of Buran Wani, but in the summer after that, the Ramadan ceasefire uh, last year, which the government enacted, the government's hope was that it would prove to be a gateway to a lasting solution. But India has tried that strategy multiple times before, and all it has done is, on the separatist side, it has led to more ideological consolidation, and that brings upon even more severe casualties on the forces. And unfortunately, with Pulwama, that uh, prophecy that I had penned in one of my articles uh, came right. And one of the core commanders of uh, the Srinagar-based 15 Corps, uh, one of the former core commanders, he read my article, he reached out to me and he said that it gives me very good material for a talk I'm going to give in a few days. Although I don't agree with uh, some of the things you've written, I think there are quite a few... uh, prescient observations that you've made, which I will be bringing up. So I think the government will be very wary of uh, enacting a ceasefire when they feel they're on top. So the government strategy is not going to change. The armed forces will be happy because uh, this restraint on their uh, standard operating procedures will be lax as it has been for the past five years. So the onus now most definitely then falls on A, Pakistan to stop supporting uh, terror and B, on the separatists on the Indian side of the border to come to the negotiating table because how long is this going to continue? Two generations of Kashmiris have already you know, either been in their eyes martyred or they've fallen prey to the economic malaise which inflicts the entire valley. So they have a very clear choice to make with this uh, strategy now that they either come to the negotiating table or this continues to continue for many decades to come. So the government doesn't have an incentive to uh, lift their foot off the accelerator to answer your question. Right. So I think obviously we will need to uh, keep a track of what's going to happen. The next six months are just so crucial uh, uh, in this entire you know conversation around Kashmir. Um, we will, for our listeners, uh, obviously reference to uh, Uday, all your articles uh, on Kashmir. Uh, I think there's some really valuable uh, reading to be done there and you know to get a 
better understanding of what uh, we have we've been talking about um so we will kind of mark that out in the uh, show notes um and uh, any any last uh, kind of uh, thoughts around uh, this entire conversation i think one uh, truly evocative image that at least always came to me when i used to think of kashmir is that it was always a uniformed soldier who was the face of our kashmir policy you know depending on uh, the severity of the threat that we faced in the valley either it was the core commander of 15 core chinar core or it was the northern army commander who was also the face of india's surgical strikes general lieutenant general huda in 2016 or it's the chief of army staff so the face of india's kashmir policy has always been a uniformed soldier uh but the fact that this government has uh, given the armed forces a free rein i think slowly the face of the kashmir strategy at least in the next 5 years will be amit shah so hopefully an elected politician can bring about more lasting change because it's not the army's mandate to bring about change it can only bring all these parties to the negotiating table so given that we finally have two strong will politicians at the top rung of the government who want to either strong arm a solution or maybe bring all parties to the table and negotiate a solution the fact that we have two politicians who are willing to do that we should look at it as a positive because for decades india's bureaucracy india's politicians they've been very happy to let tactical considerations decide our strategy uh it's not very uncommon for uh, india's kashmir strategy to be uh, spoken of in terms of tactics for the upcoming summer and you know now that the summer has come in again it has become uh, a talk of just tactics from both the crpf and the army for the upcoming summer the sooner we wean ourselves away from the talk of uh, just talking about a six month block and talking about a much more long lasting solution uh, that is the change that i hope uh, the next 5 years uh, usher in um great so let's hope for that and i guess for all the amit shah detractors out there here are some uh, <laughs> you know uh, positive uh, uh, you know metrics that we can kind of assess him on uh, and and really see his uh, efficacy as uh, the home minister and Strategy. Yeah, because he sees himself as the second coming of uh, fellow Gujarati Sardar Patel, so he will want to integrate India tighter to enshrine his legacy. So it will be interesting to see what he does in the next five years. Great. So uh, on that note, we'll move on to the next segment. So moving on to what we want to talk about next I think Som you were very interested with uh, the role that political satire has to play in uh, today's society and uh, for most of us liberalization uh, babies our first exposure was probably with the iconic G Mantri ji which was a spin off of the British uh, political satire uh, yes minister so why don't you just walk us through how political satire started how it functions in the slightly more mature democracies in the west and what role it has come to play in india now now that the proliferation of the internet and reach is so wide um right so there actually a lot of it kind of starts uh, from the country that you are in right now uh, the 
British have always had um, a really great sense of humor and um, always known how to laugh at themselves, uh, which is something uh, they were not able to spread to the rest of the world, uh, <laughs> unlike their own empire, uh, because none of none of its colonies have seemed to have learned to laugh at itself, especially in India. Uh, so it's it's been a rich tradition um, uh, in in Britain and. Um, a lot of the idea of satire was to really poke fun at the uh, establishment um, and in the process uh, make people more aware, uh, make conversations happen and uh, begin from a lighter note uh, and kind of go to a place where uh, real change can happen. Um, from there, the proliferation uh, into a lot of the other uh, countries across the world has really happened at various times of strife. Uh, it has uh, picked up in those uh, eras. Um, and I think uh, uh, even in the US, uh, uh, the, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart uh, was something that kind of heralded a lot of the modern day uh, uh, political satire that the US has seen. Uh, from there, there were, uh, you know, a lot of people inspired by Jon Stewart in the US who, who came out and kind of changed the entire uh, idea of uh, political satire. Uh, which was really driven by uh, uh, comedians and kind of sketches on uh, a lot of shows uh, back in Britain. I mean, in the late 90s, uh, there was, uh, you know, Have I Got News For You in the UK, which was a very popular show, still continues, um, where uh, a lot of, uh, um, you know, aspiring politicians, uh, including uh, Boris Johnson, who I know is uh, UK's uh, most favorite politician at this point in time, <laughs> Uh, who, who has featured and uh, on that show. But uh, I think in the US, what, what kind of uh, changed in the last, uh, you know, 15, 20 years was uh, that it, it, it became a news uh, reporting uh, kind of a platform. Um, political satire started featuring on shows that were uh, using day-to-day -day news, reporting it like news. Uh, it was well-researched, well-thought-out, uh, but also layered with a lot of satire uh, on top of it. Uh, if you look at uh, Stephen Colbert today, uh, who has this um, extremely sarcastic view of most things in life, uh, but has flourished, obviously, in the Trump era. Uh, we've seen the same with uh, Trevor Noah and The Daily Show. Um, and uh, obviously, like I was mentioning, with, you know, with strife comes great uh, uh, political satire. We've seen the same happen in India uh, in the last couple of years. Um, little more than the last couple of years, uh, I can say I mean, pretty much from 2014 as the entire country started uh, consuming news on YouTube uh, before their news channels. Uh, this became, uh, uh, I mean, there were comedians coming out of all corners of the country. Um, obviously, in India itself, uh, there has been, you know, a rich history of uh, political satire. There was R.K. Lakshman with, you know, the common man and um, a lot of it was... Uh, versus today fairly polite uh, poking uh, the government uh, through the common man. But I think it was some really powerful stuff, which uh, a lot of our older generation have kind of grown up on. Um, today's political satire is very different, right? The entire landscape has uh, completely changed in India. It's, it's got an activist, um, you know, kind of a, a mask on top of it. Um, or it, it ends with a very activist note. A lot of the stand-up comedians uh, that we listen to today, uh, Kunal Kamra, when he broke out onto the scene uh, a few years back, uh, um, 
I think one of the first things that happened after that was that uh, people started having conversations um, around politics. Uh, there were a lot of other uh, comedian uh, groups. I mean, there is Essie Democracy, which uh, uh, is three comedians. Uh, again, I think Varun Grover, someone that you know I've grown to be very fond of from just his style of delivery, a lot of his content. Yeah. Um, there is Official Being Human, which is really uh, not one person. I'm actually not even sure who are the people behind it, but uh, uh, there are, uh, it's, it's again very well thought out and it's really a lot of clips uh, from what's happening uh, in the world of news. And I think they're really attacking uh, mainstream news, which is what a lot of political satire has become about today, right? I think it is really the failure of uh, mainstream news and the mainstream journalism to be able to take a stand on anything, to be able to call the bullshit when they see it. Uh, and that's where political satire is really flourishing today uh, in India with some of these, uh, you know, outfits and some of these uh, groups. So then that leads us to a very important question. Should we then be viewing these uh, activist YouTube videos, a political satire, which have a really strong message as the conveyors of news and truth, or do we continue to treat them as political satire? Because right on the border of where perhaps satire crosses over into mainstream uh, fact-based news, lie these shows like uh, Akash Banerjee's uh, show or Dhruv Rathi's show, and it then spawns off counter forces as well, like the Sham Sharma's show. So how should we then be viewing this uh, viewing the, these shows in front of us, should we be very clear in delineating uh, what stands for satire and what stands for facts? Or uh, are we viewing this entirely wrong? Um, so I think on that front, we need to just look at the construct of YouTube itself, right? Considering a lot of these guys exist and you know live on YouTube. Um, I think historically, uh, YouTube has just constantly done this for any kind of uh, content that shows up there. Uh, if there is, uh, you know, movies coming up there or there are movie trailers out there, then there are spoof trailers, uh, you know, channels completely dedicated to that. Uh, if there are uh, highlights of sports, then there are fail failures of sports that show up there. I think somehow there's just this constant need for, uh, uh, you know, for, for something... Uh, you know, to, to be created or, or to be designed that is constantly an opposing force uh, to anything uh, that we see on YouTube. And uh, that seems to be the case even with uh, political satire in India. I mean, I feel that Dhruv Rati and Akash Banerjee are at some level um, staying true to the whole idea of political satire, which is poking fun at the establishment. But they're using facts, right? which is something that we are now seeing coming out of you know, John Oliver on HBO, or you're seeing that with Hasan Minhaj on Netflix. Uh, it is uh, it, it is packaged in a way that uh, you'd be interested to listen to it. Um, but at the same time, there is uh, a very clear finger being pointed at the government. The problem with the Sham Sharma show and, you know, it's ink today for me is that it's really fighting the, uh, you know, the so-called um, left-wing liberal uh, thinking today, but I, I don't believe some of these guys are really, uh, you know, picking sides out here. They're just questioning what they believe is wrong. Uh, and I won't really slot Asham Sharma into political satire. It is, it is cracking jokes at an opposition, but the opposition is not uh, the establishment. 
um, the establishment in their eyes is anyone who is against the establishment that they believe in. And the whole idea of political satire is to not pick sides. It's to think about the common man first. You know, uh, R.K. Lakshman's common man always saw it from the point of view of the common man. And that's what the role of some of this should be. Um, and therein, I feel, lies uh, some of the inherent uh, contradictions around political satire and some of my fears uh, and hopes, right? Like, uh, one thing I feel very strongly about is that the more you listen to some of this political satire, I mean, like, I've been listening to Trevor Noah now constantly, thanks to YouTube, constantly pushing him right to the top of my feed uh, yeah. for so long that I just don't believe there is anyone good in American politics. <laughs> and this, you know, and the, and the same has started to happen uh, with uh, Indian politics too, right? Like, there is someone... Uh, poking fun at the current establishment, there is someone poking fun at the opposition, and all of it is uh, is not so much to hold up the the Indian constitution or what a citizen should expect out of their government, uh, or just the inherent contradictions that uh, our establishment or uh, keeps posing uh, to its people. I think that for me is something that scares me. Um, and something that gives me hope is that I know so many people around me who constantly, you know, the moment a conversation around politics begins, they're like, hey, we don't want to talk about politics. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, you know, it's, it's not talking about, you know, <laughs> drugs or it's, it's not, we're not really talking about, um, you know, things that happened in our childhood, which we want to forget. It's, it's, <laughs> it's generally something, it's generally something that affects us. I mean, we're talking affects about affects us every day. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about movies, we're talking about uh, cricket. Uh, actually, I, I don't talk about cricket so much. But, uh, we talk about football, we talk about so many things, and politics is just one of those conversations, but no one's ready to have it. Yeah. Uh, until unless one of them see a video by you know, a comedian they like. Or, and today, actually, while I point out a Konal Khamra or a Varun Grover, I feel outside of Kenny Sebastian in India, I think every comedian has some politics thrown into his uh, uh, routine. <laughs> routine yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that is one good thing uh, in, in a very warped way that uh, a lot of youngsters today are ready to engage on politics because of something that they've heard a comedian say. Uh, and a lot of comedians obviously talk about something that is fairly current. Uh, and it at least gets them interested, piques their interest to the point where they're ready to engage. And, and that, that maybe is a good thing, but I feel that if they continue to engage with it long enough, um, they will get disillusioned and desensitized. Okay. So it's, it's a worrying cycle, but, um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. I think in closing from my side, taking uh, from something that you touched upon earlier, the fact that uh, a lot of the satire is now fact-based and politics is including, increasingly worked into more and more routines. Uh, the one really sad takeaway for me is that truth now has become the best form of political satire. And that is a very sad indictment of the state of our politics, not just in India, but pretty much uh, across the world's democracies. The fact that that uh, these uh, forces exist which will continue to battle uh, the so-called political satirists just because their party or their ideology 
holds sway. I think that uh, disintermediates politicians from having to speak to the public, from having to give interviews, from having to pen op-eds to either defend their economic policies or their policies on refugees or their policies on, say, a controversial uh, citizen amendment bill. It's uh, It's this army of online citizens who do it for them. I think that's a really sad takeaway from the fact that truth has now become the best political satire. So uh, I think you are slightly more hopeful uh, on this than I am because I never cared much for uh, political satire. Shows like G. Mantriji and Yes Minister, they're in a class of their own. But the sort of daily uh, cycle of political satire is not something I've cared for. And uh, I think in that sense, you're much more hopeful that uh, this actually brings the younger people into politics than I am. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in Ukraine, we saw, you know, Vladimir Zelensky even becoming the, you know, president of Ukraine, being a comedian and, you know, just uh, <laughs> spending his entire campaign putting out, uh, you know, funny jokes and on Twitter and, uh, you know, whatever was allowed in uh, Ukraine or social media. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, but yeah, that would be uh, an extreme of my hope around uh, political satire, which I would not wish for uh, our country. Though I feel Amitsha maybe kind of tick some of those boxes by becoming uh, an integral <laughs> part of our government. But, yeah, uh, and I think denying the truth or at least normalizing uh, things which we would have earlier slightly shirked away from, I think he's done a really good job of uh, bringing that into our uh, main broad stream discourse yeah and uh, yeah and i think that's satire in its own way but uh, i think my hope comes from the fact that um, uh, in in this extremely disaffected you know millennial crowd that i have to kind of wade through every day <laughs> of my life uh, i feel that uh, it's not that intelligent conversations happening all all the time even for my end for that matter but a conversation is happening. Uh, and I feel that in a time where we are so distracted with the amount of content kind of coming out of, uh, you know, social media and nobody's even watching television in this crowd anymore. So news channels, we know from a distance what they're saying and we know that it's not something that you can listen to anymore. Um, I feel that the fact that a conversation is happening uh, is great, but it's, but, you know, the, the question I ask myself is that, are we informed in a way that tomorrow, as, as the youth of this country, we could emulate uh, something like what the youngsters in Hong Kong did, right, with their protests? Can, can we mobilize? Can we, can we become activists? Can we think for ourselves uh, from all that we hear, right? Uh, and can satire push you to be able to um, think beyond your, your day-to-day duty as a human being and to be able to think as a citizen of this country. Uh, I, I, I agree that we need to draw a line, even in my own expectations of what political satire can do. Uh, and it is diluting the political conversation to a large extent uh, for people who are informed and want to be able to go beyond the daily diatribe that we are surrounded by. Uh, but for an audience that refuses to become a part of the political conversation in this country, I think it's a great starting point. Yes, so on that hopeful note, I think uh, it, this is again a topic which will uh, be a thread which runs through our episodes. So hopefully we'll return to it at uh, some point in the future. Yes, I promise to bring you many loves. <laughs> <laughs>
so that's it for this episode of pontificating across the pond and thank you all for being with us right till the end and as for the next episode which we will bring out probably just after the presentation of the union budget we'll talk about one of our really sad forebodings from the previous episode which seems to have come true with respect to the independence of the reserve bank of india as the deputy governor viral acharya becomes the latest high profile really strong academically credentialed uh, governors to leave the bank so that's one topic we'll definitely touch upon and thank you for being with us